Welcome to the Pete Primo Show. It is episode 144, and my good friend Patrick Tinney is with us. We're going to be talking about his amazing new book, Nothing Stops Me. Probably the best book ever written for the times that we find ourselves in. But before we do that, let's pay the bills. If you haven't bought my book, Sell a Million, what are you waiting for? 101 tips on how to sell another million. And I'd like to thank my friends at the Mattress Industry Network Group for sponsoring my show. Steve and Greg, you guys are the best. And we are over, what, 2,200, maybe 2,300 by now. Um, if you are in the mattress industry, we want you in this group. This is a great place to, to network, to learn how to build your business, how to market, how to sell and succeed in the mattress uh, industry. It is a group run by retailers um, for the benefit of the entire industry. And if you don't join the group, hit that QR code and join the group and uh, tell them Pete sent you. I am in and out of the group throughout the week as I am very busy, but I love to get in there and do what I can to contribute. Patrick, welcome to the show, my friend. We have lived off. Yes. The book, the book has taken off to another galaxy. Yes. 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 Oh my yes. God. What Listen. a what a cover. Holy cow. You know, do you notice I wore the orange? You know, just to, you know. Hey homage. Jennifer. Thanks for saying hi. Listen, guys, if you think this is Pat's first rodeo, you are sadly mistaken. Get this book, Perpetual Hungry. Hung, h hunger. Get this book on negotiating. Best book on negotiations you'll ever find. In this book, the bonus round, elite, elite sales techniques and a history inadvertently of advertising. Guy Danes, evening gents, look forward. Guy and Kyle Danes are friends in South Africa. Thank you for saying hi. Uh, Joe Clay, Mattress Industry Network Group can help you no matter what stage you're in. Yes, that's 100% true. Join the group, get in here, and uh, take advantage of all the, the, uh, all the knowledge and all the intel that you can get. So, Pat, I got to tell you something. I was in a two-day mastermind last week. Thursday and Friday. And the very first thing out of our mastermind leaders um, mouth at the very beginning is ladies and gentlemen, if you think the next 24 months are going to be easy, this, it, this is your reality check. It's not going to be easy. Some of you, no, it's going to be tough will not survive, but those of you who can buckle up and understand that you're going to have to work hard, you're going to have to work smart, you're going to have to leverage every opportunity, those of you who embrace this challenge, you will come out on the other end of this so much stronger and thankful that you buckled up and you did what you had to do. So with that said... This show today is going to offer you a lot of hope. Not only is it inspirational, but it's instructional. If you are a salesperson, 
especially a B2B salesperson, you have to get this book. If you own a business, you have to get this book. What Patrick's life tells us, the parts of it that are in this book, it tells us that no matter what life throws at you, you can get up, you can dust yourself off, and you can win. And, and Pat, for those of in my audience who don't know, um, I want you to take me through your first nine years and take whatever time you want, because then I have some very insightful questions I think are insightful about your book. Uh, but I, I think we have to start there. People who don't know your story need to understand your story, Pat. Yeah, I, uh, I come from a um, pretty unique, I would say, kind of family setting. Um, Poorness really doesn't cover it. Um, food insecurity doesn't really cover it. Um, we were um, a fairly large family. It was all dislocated after the Second World War. And, um, um, you know, we, we all just hung together, you know, and it was very difficult. So my, my father um, was what I would call the... Ultra, the, the ultimate entrepreneur without knowing what that was. Uh, he could um, build just about anything. And he did. He built his own house. He built a theater in Campbellford with a partner who ripped him up. And, um, you know, he was involved in everything, all, all the community stuff. Like he was, you know, he was a kinsman. My grandfather was a 50-year diamond with the Masons, uh, which is very unusual. He ran the lodge. Um uh, but um, we were a really open family. Um, by that, I mean, in those days, uh, you know, if you were a Protestant, you didn't hang out with Catholics. It was really weird. Um, we were Irish. Uh, the Irish were not loved in Canada. Um, I can remember my mother saying years uh, after, you know, when we finally got a chance to sit down and talk, she said, um, your father told me that... Uh, you know, the dislike for Irish people was so deep in Campbellford that uh, the nurses at the hospital laughed that my father would stick me with a first name like Patrick. They said, why would wow. you do that to that kid? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it was embedded. It took a long time to fix. I mean, something I've just learned recently, I've read a lot of the history of Ireland, and um it got so bad in Ireland that there was no food, so they would eat grass. So when a lot of the Irish emigrated to Canada, we were referred to as grassers. Mm -hmm. That's what we same, same thing in the United States. You know, I'm I'm 51% Irish, so my joke is I'm an Irishman with a French name. Um, and some of the stories that my grandfather uh, told, and I'm Irish on both sides. Um, so, yeah. I've I've heard the whole yeah, story. It, it, and, you know, it, it, a, a it's lot hard. of people yeah, don't realize is you know a lot of people never survived the trip because we couldn't afford they, we couldn't afford yeah. to be in the normal quarters and 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 we had to go in with the slaves. It That's was pretty bad, and um, most people knew that they faced a good 
percentage chance of dying, but it was that bad. I'm going to die here. I'm going to starve to death here, or I take my chance dying going across the ocean. And our people chose to go across the ocean. And it was quite normal for children to die at birth. So my yes. grandmother had eight, six lived. My, uh, my dad's uh, mom had three. He was the only one that survived. And one of them is in an, in an unmarked, actually both are in unmarked graves. So, um, yeah, you know, you come to discover all of this stuff uh, later. My particular case, um, I, I was, it was just like a total disaster. My sister was five pounds at birth. My mom only weighed a hundred pounds and she was about five feet tall. And, you know, they didn't have the equipment. They just kind of, you know, uh, doctors were, you know, they, they made a lot of educated guesses and, you know, like sometimes they just got them wrong. Right. And, um, I was, uh, my mother carried me and there was, she, I guess she didn't put on any weight. There's another argument for how well she ate. Um, but, uh, you know, he just made a decision he said, well, your first uh, child, uh, Gene, was five pounds cesarean. I think this one's going to be even smaller, so we're going to try for natural birth. Problem was I was 50% larger than my sister. And, like, big shoulders, big head, big, just big body, right? And a long right. kid. And um, during the birth, the birth was so bad that the doctor was almost bored. In other words, he almost lost his license. And my mother's tailbone was broken. My face was so smashed up that um, my mother wasn't allowed to see me for a month until she got home. The nurses were afraid to show my mother her child. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I got a lazy left eyelid, um, you know, which uh, <laughs> you got to understand. <laughs> the funny part about all this is my, my grandmother, Scottish grandmother that lived with us, and she was born near uh, St. Andrews in Scotland. She says, you know, lassie, that's a banker's eye right there. He's going to be a banker with an eye like that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, she, she thought I was akin to Scrooge or something. <laughs> a little kid, but um, no, things are things are pretty hard. You know, uh, my dad was a really trusting guy. Small town, everybody paid everybody back. Everybody took care of everybody. Uh, his partner ripped him off and left with uh, three years worth of earnings um, for the opening of the theater and um, and the decision because we were so heavily involved in all of the. Um, you know, community care things, you know, like Masons and, uh, you know, uh, Kinsman. My mother was a Kinnett. My father took the town from uh, dry to wet, which was a big deal because the farmers were having to drive an hour to the next town over to have a beer. Well, the problem is they wouldn't have one beer. They would have as many as they could drink and then try and get back. And there was lots of car accidents and there was lots of deaths. So my, um, um, my, my dad went to all the farmers' wives. That's who he petitioned. And said, wouldn't you rather have uh, Jake at home and watch him have a beer or two, you know, after chores are done, rather than getting in that truck? You know what happens. And it was it was him that did it. He he. And then the really strange thing was the. I'm sure this happens in the United States. If it happens in Canada, um, the political power that came in at the time was not my dad's political uh, background. So he would have had to convert to another party and he couldn't do that. And so as a result, that job, which was a for life job, and you would have got paid like stupid amounts of money compared to the average person, um, was handed to another guy. So my dad, um, 
really athletic guy, great swimmer. He was one of those long distance swimmers. And um, uh, at age 16, he won an open, which is really weird. I, I don't say how far people came, but they came from all over the place to compete. He was 16 years old. And so many people have died on the Trent River because it's a notoriously dangerous river here in Canada. And um, I, I can think of four deaths just off the top of my head. And I, I actually had to take one of the Lockmasters for a drive after a mom uh, slipped off of a scow with her with her child in front of a powerhouse. Neither of them could swim, and, he, and she managed to push the child back up on top of the scow, and then she disappeared. And that was the second person he lost on that lock. And I was the Second World War vet, and he couldn't take it. I had to take him for a drive. I was the guy the family chose. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's just the emotional um, stuff that, you know, that, that comes with that. And, and this gentleman by the name, is, his name is Alvin Hollings. When he came back from the Second World War, there was no food here. There were no jobs. So he took a job with, uh, um, uh, eventually he got on with the government and became a lockmaster. But he, he trapped for protein. So he would go out and hunt beaver and bring beaver home. And, you know, just slice it up and throw it on the, on the counter and say to his wife, you know, you got to cook that up. That's dinner. And we know now that the, the hinds of a beaver taste a lot like, um, a really rich, uh, sirloin, uh, roast. <laughs> so, um, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Steve Hauk. And thank you, Stu, for joining us. Um, so Pat, fast forward us to we got Pete in a suit it must be Halloween actually because we're talking about I know it's I, listen everybody who knows me knows that this time of year you're going to see me in one of four or five different flannel shirts so um, yeah it, it's we not call it a band rough out of respect for Patrick's fourth book, which, by the way, here's a little yeah. inside baseball on that. Hey, Ernest, how are you? It's nice to see you. Hey, sir. there's Ernie. He is. Uh, he, rocked, is you know. he is one of your best fans, and boy, is he a smart guy. Um, he is a power sales guy. So is this guy, Steve. Uh, Steve Hope. This, this guy, man, he can sell. He knows. He knows furniture. This man knows mattresses. He does. He, he also knows. knows how to try. He also knows how to travel. Boy, I'll tell you, he's got some travel <laughs> stories I'd love to have. He just doesn't know how to buy RVs. <laughs> yeah, Captain Winnebago. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, inside story. Go ahead. The inside story is this. I had a thought after I finished bonus round. It just popped in my head that Patrick has another book in him. And I just said, you know, I'm going to leave him alone. I'm not going to say anything to him. Well, this thought came again and again and again and again. It came so much and so often that finally I looked up and I said, okay, I will talk to him about it. And then I talked to you about it and I told you exactly what was happening. Like th th this, I mean, it was coming again and again and again and again. It, it wouldn't leave me alone. And I, be I believe that the good Lord wanted you to write this book 
And I had no idea what the book was going to be. I just said to you, Patrick, you're going to think I'm crazy because I'm telling you that God talks to me and God told me for you to write a fourth book. <laughs> and, and then just wish you stop talking to people upstairs. And then our joke started four. I know. And, and and nobody knew what we were talking about at the beginning. We're talking about, them. and then I no. started to see these long posts on LinkedIn. Yeah, and yeah. They, I'm looking at these posts, and I'm going, "These are chapters in a book." I'm like, "He's doing it." And then I kept going with four, four, four. Then when we would slow down, I'd pester him some more. So that's why the joke is. Four, and of course, Patrick, with his sense of humor, doesn't go F O U R, he goes F O R E, as if I've hit a golf ball in a strange place. And he should know that I can't play golf, so it, it, there's a lot of comedy and back and forth going, going. But I will tell you this about this book um, I, I think that you cannot get through the first 20 pages without crying and understanding what a tough life. I mean, I've gone through my life and I said, man, it was so rough losing my dad when I was 24. This gentleman, Patrick Tinney, who stands before you, has written four books, retired before he was 50 and couldn't stand being on the sideline. So opened up his own agency. Um, he lost his dad at nine years old. And I felt bad about losing my dad at 23, 24 years old. So I, I just can't imagine what that was like. And the interesting thing. And being, and being, being broke, you know, like, you know, people don't understand how broke. Immediately broke you means. took, yeah, you immediately you took on the role of provider in your mind at nine. Yeah, that yeah, is I did. crazy in a very good and a very special way. And it really speaks to your heart. And I believe that you sell with your mind. And I believe you sell with your heart. And if people don't feel the right thing here, no matter how good you are up here, none of it matters. And so I just have to ask you a question and you have never been asked this question. I can guarantee you, you've never been asked this question. So I spent the entire weekend with your book. I read half the book twice because I, I read it before. You were kind enough to provide me an advanced copy. And I read half of it. But then when I got the physical book, I read it all the way through this weekend. And <clears throat> there is a part in the book where, you know, your son is, is going in these different directions. And he's really, you know, doing his thing. He's mastering various crafts. He's, he's, he's being successful. And then one day he plops next to you on the sofa and he says, dad, tell me everything you know about sales and negotiations. What did that feel like, Pat? Um, here's what you have to sort of appreciate. Um, 
First of all, um, Sean overcame uh, extreme dyslexia. So his uh, education was uh, very difficult. And um, he's one of these people who is so determined that when he wants to learn something, you just can't stop him. You, you just, it, it, uh, he kind of sort of says it like I said, if you can point at it, I can do it. And, and, and that's the way that he thinks. So um, when he started out, he started out as a, um, uh, in the culinary arts business. And he was like 15 years old, I think. And I got a call from him from work. And he said, uh, dad, he says, I, you know, I don't know if you noticed, I didn't get home last night. I stayed at the hotel. I'm involved in some kind of competition. I really don't understand it. Uh, but it's happening up at Seneca College. And just, you know, I just want you to know everything's okay. So I said, okay. I said, well, I'm a dead book. He goes, no. Nah. He says, I don't know. He says, this is it's just a bunch of chefs getting together. Well, what he didn't tell me was it was the Escoffier Awards. These are global awards uh, for food presentation. And he was competing against every major, you know, cooking group and chef group across Canada. And all of a sudden I get a call around, I don't know, about 10 o'clock in the morning. He says, you know what, Dad, you might want to drift up and have a look. Drift up and have a look. He was, I think he was 15 and he, he took a bronze. So like, like kids of those age, he doesn't, he didn't know what he'd won. So he won this beautiful certificate, this beautiful bronze medal. Well, he's wearing it like bling. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what a great time. But they burn him out in the hotels. And that's the problem with the business is that they, uh, you're just working so many hours. It's everything is compressed. The pressure, the pressure of working on a line when you're like 16 years old. I remember he said to me, he said, Daddy, he says, I was so freaked out the first time I saw the line running live. And like he worked in banquets and, you know, he, he you know, he'd be serving 600 people at once. And it was just like, but he said, the pressure is even higher on the line in the live kitchen because the chips just keep coming in. We've all seen those cooking shows, you know, where restaurants right. die, 80% of restaurants die, right? Well, right. in a hotel setting, you can't, that can't happen. Show's got to go up. Right. right. So anyway, I, I, um, he, he left the industry after 10 years and then he went and ended up in some horrible caustic environment where he was doing coatings on big gigantic construction bolts and the tanks of chemicals would have like 50 skull and crossbones on them, an explosion thing. Like the stuff he was handling could melt cement. And then he'd wow. have to go in and clean out the dredges of these things wearing a hazmat suit at 120 mm. degrees. Yeah. You think that can't get worse, right? No, it gets much worse. Then he joins a barn restoration team doing freestyle at five stories up on a 40 foot ladder with an eight foot swing radius. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess there's, um, when he sat down beside me, it was clear to him that, you know, he was going to become an entrepreneur uh, and it was clear to him he was going to have to start cutting a lot more deals. And I, and I think that over a period of time, he'd watched me train so many people, impact so many people in, in ways that were just like dramatic. Like I was, I mentioned the one gentleman in the book who um, he had uh, dyslexia as well. And he said, you know, I want to take your program. But he says, you're going to run it at your house. I said, I'm not. 
do that. I said, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, by the way, uh, before I go on, my son reads perfectly now. That's awesome. We, we address it. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 reads, he reads perfectly. It's beautiful. Um, so I mean, this guy shows up at my house and every third slide he's going and he's in the construction list, big money construction. He's going, why don't I know this bat? Why don't I know? I don't know. And like, you can just see the perspiration coming off of him. And I, and I just sort of said to myself, like, what do you, what do you think you're going to do with your business? I said, I don't know. The end of the session, which took a little bit longer, which is fine. He looks up at me and he says, uh, I have to leave nice. I have to go back and uh, rebuild my entire uh, financial uh, model because you've just shown me things I never knew. And so he did. But a year later, I get a call. He says, I want to be your consultative selling program. I said, sure. And I hadn't really talked to him a lot since I did my follow-up with him. I always do, you know, sort of anchoring. And I met him. He rolls up in his Mercedes Benz, by the way. And this guy's like, he's, he's doing fine. And I said, so how did it go? Uh, this year, he said, Patty says, if I would have known the impact you're going to have on my business, he says, first of all, he says, I made your feedback with the first um, style of question that you showed me how to do to, you know, to explore and qualify a deal very quickly with your question step program, the way that you do it. He saved, I saved your fee on the first question. And he said, had I known the impact you're going to have on my business the first time I met you, I would, I would have written you a check for $45,000. So, there's always an X factor. When somebody gives you a number, it's not the real number. There's an X factor. And I think probably that X factor for him was 13 or something like that. Yeah. And that, 13 times that amount. And that chapter in the book, ladies and gentlemen, is worth the price of the book just by itself right there. What you'll get out of that, um, it, it's it's worth it. Carson, thank you very much. You talk about rock stars. Carson Hetty is one of the biggest rock stars in sales uh, that I've ever met. And uh, calling us rock stars is uh, is very humbling. I I actually I actually dropped Carson in the back of the book there. So you're, you're in there, Carson. You rascal. You're in yeah, there. Yeah, you are I, uh, in there, Carson. I, Two consummate rock stars and professionals love this discussion. Congrats on the new book, Pat. And yes, Pat. This book was what you've always poured a lot of yourself in your books, Pat. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Yeah. But you yeah, don't really, quote anybody. You really, you really poured yourself into this one. I mean, this one. Well, I, I felt that whole nother level, brother. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I was, there are parts of it when I'm sitting there with my head in my hands, I'm going, I can't share this. Like, you know, I think the one that was the hardest to write, there's a lot of hard ones to write, but the one that was the hardest to write was when Bay City Magazine went broke after I came back from Edmonton. So I got up to Edmonton, been really successful, bought a car, didn't have a car when I got out there. I turned down an opportunity to play baseball with the Eagles because I was so broke. I couldn't attend the concert. I couldn't get there. Um, and that was part of their rider. And, um, you know, that we had to field a baseball team. And I just said to the young lady who bought that, by the way, it was the Commonwealth Games. I mean, the tickets alone for the Commonwealth Games were just worth like insane amounts of money. Insane, right? So anyway, long story short is I get back and I get involved with this magazine and it looks good. And I'm in Hamilton, which is where I grew up. We moved to Hamilton because my dad had to make out a lot of money and he worked the heaviest welding job in the whole plant. My dad was only five, seven. I mean, he wasn't like big, you know, bones like me. He was a uh, smaller bone. 
Um, and uh, he was lifting beams. So a back retractor, you'll see that when they lift up, they lift up a frame with all the hooks uh, behind the tines, the, uh, the cultivators. Well, that whole frame was what he built. And it would take two of them. And they could only build around, uh, I would say, 20 of those a shift. So he would have been lifting for each one of those frames. He would have been lifting maybe six, seven, eight, nine hundred pounds uh, of metal and then and then welding it while he was holding it. It's, mm. it's just so bizarre. And then it would go into an oven and uh, it would get uh, uh, spray painted uh, International Harvester Red. And then the guy in the other end had to pull these frames out. Right. So anyway, the magazine went broke. Um, that I got involved with, they pulled the plug on the last day, which is just brutal because, you know, I'd sold $60,000 worth of advertising at a 10 to 15% commission, but my draw was a hundred bucks. So you can't live on a hundred bucks, right? I don't care where you live. You can't live on a hundred bucks. So I borrowed money all over Hamilton. If you know anything about Hamilton, Steel Town, you got, if you, if you can think about crime, well, there, there's a lot of it there. So I was borrowing money for everybody. And, and then I, I went to the bank one day and the, and the, and my draw check bounced. Well, it was the day before the publication was supposed to go. That was when I was supposed to get my $6,000 check. Like that was enough to buy 10 cars. My Biscayne only cost 600. So anyway, uh, I, uh, I ran back to the office and the office was locked up and I went, gee, Louise, how am I going to, the first thing I did was I went to all my advertisers and I, I apologized to them. I said, this is a, this is a, and this is a very personal thing for me. And I just, I'm sorry. I, you know, I can play you guys down and um, I'll do everything I can do to, you know, to, you know, get you to the right publications and get you involved. And by the way, you won't be billed for any of the creative we did and all the rest of the stuff. And then I was looking for a job, but it was not. Everything, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a very difficult time. It was like 1979. You know, we, you know, it was just, there was there wasn't much in Hamilton at that time, and that would have meant that I would have had to go to Toronto. But I didn't. I I was bankrupt myself now, so I thought, where do I get a job? The only place I figured I could get a job right away uh, was at International Harvester, where my dad dropped dead. So I applied, and you know they did. Oh man! Uh, so anyway, they 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 did let me in. They put me on a a couple of jobs just to sort of test my, you know my ability to work in an industrial environment because I, I just, you know, I didn't want to do that. I delivered pianos when I was a kid. I did, you know, all kinds of stuff. Right. But, um, uh, eventually the job come up to work the ovens. Now those ovens are 350 to 400 degrees. I, I had sunburn in the winter. And the thing is my dad's, the, the place where he died, where I didn't, I didn't get to say goodbye to him that day was on the other side of the oven. So but once a day, I would walk around the oven and try to visualize my dad being one of those two guys welding those frames. And then I was emptying the oven one day. And so there'd be like 15 frames come out at a time. There's no lighting inside the oven, right? And you're just sweating. You're just dripping inside because you're having to wear so, many, so, much, so much clothing. And so I just, for a second, I took my hard hat off and somebody dropped a load of steel, probably, I don't know, maybe... 70, 900 pounds, we'd like the size of the piano on the other side of the oven. And there was one frame at the very back that you couldn't see. There's no way. And it was on a, like a big trolley system and the frames are hanging on two small hooks. And I, and I took my hat off and turned around and stared in the oven. And the last thing I remember was the sound bong. 
uh, it, it hit me right in the face. And I blacked out. I'd never been blacked out before. I mean, I don't know how far it threw me, but somehow God kept that frame on those two little hooks because if that frame would have fallen off, I would have been dead. Are you going to finish the story or do you want me to finish it for you? Go ahead. So what you need to appreciate is his father worked there for years before his father died of a heart attack in that factory. And now they're thinking we're going to lose another tinny. So they basically came to Patrick. He said, you got to get out of here. Not in a mean yeah, they way. Asked me to leave. Out of love. No. Love. Yeah. We we can't have this. My dad's yeah. funeral was one of the biggest, but it was one of the biggest the company had ever run. So the rest of the story is shortly thereafter, he gets a phone call and the voice says, Are you gangfully employed? And Patrick <laughs> of course. says, Of course I am. Now they've asked to tell him he him. hasn't left yet. Of course he's gainfully employed. He doesn't at back then he was on he didn't know it, but he was had already mastered some negotiation skills. So I'll let you pick up from there. Yeah, I forgot to tell the guy that I was gainfully employed in a 350 to 400 degree oven. <laughs> You don't have to tell everything, folks. You don't have to tell everything. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bizarre. Honest to God, I think. And I had a guy who I met out at Edmonton, and he he was, you know, he knew what happened when I got back to Hamilton, just the destruction of everything, right? And he kept saying, you know, I'm involved with the agency business. He says, I'll put you in touch with the Molson family or the Labatt family, and we'll get you into an agency. And I said, no, I got to do this myself. If everybody turns around and helps me every time things go wrong, then all of a sudden I'm not going to have that um, that that ball of fire in the bottom of my stomach that I need. And you know, it, it, I I I always rather than getting angry at people, I had a horrible time getting angry at people when I was a kid. I always felt sorry for the other kids, but I never lost a fight as an adult ever. And I got in some bad ones, like. You know, I had a guy break into our house and he was uh, a druggie. Anyway, long story short was that uh, my uncle ran out one door and I ran out the other. Uh, he was, he, had, he stole like a floor fed from us and then he came back up in my mother's mink coat while she was asleep, by the way. And I caught him and I pinned him against the uh, drugstore window, uh, just about a half a block away. He was screaming at all the apartment buildings on Sunday mornings. Just say, this guy has ransacked our home. I said, Call the police fast, right? And he spun me around and he pressed me against that. You remember the old uh, thick windows on drugstores? Like, I mean, you can almost bend it, right? And he said, kid, because I was about 15, he said, kid, uh, I'm going to take you and I'm going to throw you through this window and I'm going to cut you in half. And I spun him back around and I said, not a chance, big boy. Hang on. You grew up fast and you grew up tough and that toughness almost bit you in the rear because your language at one point was a little coarse. And what my, my, my oh question my is, God. My, what my question is getting at is this, we all have to change to be the best version of us that we can be. And you yeah. realized at one point 
one of your bosses let you know that you needed to change and you changed. And I want you to talk about that a little bit. Well, I grew up in the toughest high school in Hamilton. I mean, it, people always argue, but what was the toughest? I, I was uh, relaying to my uh, 91-year-old editor. I said, you know, watching all of the fights that are going on, you know, as a result of the um, the war in the Middle East right now. And I said, you know, I was in high school one day and uh, I don't know what happened. I used to hang out with uh, a lot of football players and basketball players. I would be sort of the uh, athlete, non-athlete. I uh, I played uh, smallest guy on the, on the volleyball team. And I played right through until varsity uh, with a broken back, by the way. Um, I was running uh, track. Uh, so I won the public school field day in grade eight against guys that were like two, three years old. Like these guys could shave. The women who graduated grade eight because they were all coming over from other countries and they all ended up in Hamilton. They were wearing backless dresses. Like they were fully developed women. Fully. Right? And I kept looking at them going, wow. <laughs> Anyway, this guy, this guy had about two years on me, and uh, I, I spent every day running around the uh, football stadium, Ivorn Stadium, uh, for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and uh, and I, I don't know why, I just believed that I was going to win, and I could just see, uh, we had to do two laps of the stadium, and I could just see this guy, he just had it, he had it, and in the last hundred yards, I think he drank a little bit of water before he got on there, and it was a million degrees, and he leaned over like he was going to hoop. And I and I kicked, and I and I beat him. I don't think he ever forgave me. <laughs> but that got me drafted into the uh, the high school track and field team. I didn't want to go, but you know that's where I ended up. But that day, I remember the fight that broke out. It was just like it was, you know, every location in the high school, every door there was a fist fight going on. Usually, it's like one place where it happens, right? No, it was a war. It's crazy, and. Um, you know, I was kind of a peacemaker in those days, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes. I was the employer because I hired most of the football team and half of the basketball team to come and deliver pianos with me. I lied about my age to get into the piano delivery business. And within a year, I was running the whole warehouse. I mean, I was I was making 105. I was making as much money as my mother was full time so I could stay in school. She, she basically said to me when I was a kid, which is how it all started, she said, Pat, we have no money. We have nothing. I have to go back to high school and I've got a grade nine education. And she said, the best I can do is get you to grade 10, which meant that at 16 years old, I would go and work in, in that industrial environment for the rest of my life. Because what happens is once you get into one of those places, you can't leave. You become brainwashed. And I knew it. And yet your path has led you to retire at, at an age where uh, most people are still working, you've written four sales and negotiation books, your insights and your professionalism are unparalleled, but you started off as a scrappy, tough kid who basically all he knew is he wanted to provide for him and his mom, so you had food on the table. And in between that, you're fighting off adults. I mean, yeah. this if if I made this book into a movie, if if I took your life and I tried to write it into a script for a movie, they would make me pull out most of it because there's too many plot point twists. 
there's no there's no way the audience can follow us all throughout these ups and these downs. Nobody survives this, Pat. Yet you didn't survive. You thrived. So what? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I, a couple of things I couldn't put in the book. Well, you know, it's really funny. As a kid, I had to make a really large moral decision. So I, I was growing up in a town that had a lot of crime. So the movie The French Connection. Um, was developed based on a story of Hamilton. Oh, wow. That's, yes, you look it up, it's the truth. My uncle uh, was an enforcer in Chicago in the 1930s. I think it was for Bugs Malone, I think. And he was a professional fighter. And uh, he came back, and out of all my cousins, he chose me to be the one that he was going to mentor and to become one of those guys. And I just looked at him and thought, you know what, there's something really wrong here. I, I don't know what it is. And, and then I found out later he was living a double life. Um, he did, did some horrible crimes, uh, horrible crimes. I mean, things I don't even want to talk about. Um, and um, somehow I got through all that. I lived with an uncle with post-traumatic stress disorder. And he was uh, in, you know, decline. And I was his target every day. It was like movie Goodwill Hunting, and I always chose the wrench. Mm. I just you wouldn't know, give up. I mean, I would, I would wake up every morning and say, you're killing your mother. You're a freaking loser. And then I'd get home and I, I'd be facing the same thing again, filling in all my friends' um, delivery sheets uh, so that they could get paid by the uh, movie company, and then start doing my homework at around you know, 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night until it was done. And then I go to school. I had no idea why I was in school. I just didn't have a clue. I just knew that people would say like, you know, nobody ever bothered me about not making classes. They would just say, have you seen him? Yes. In a truck. <laughs> He's okay. <laughs> That's obsessed. He's out there. <laughs> and funny story. I had to go in and, and um, so that we had a professional football player here in Canada. His name's Angelo Mosca. He became King Kong Mosca on the WWE uh, wrestling tour. Massive man, dirtiest player in the in the, <laughs> the history of the CFL. He's got bad. He liked kids though, and so I would go to the stadium because I was always at the stadium hanging around. And he'd come out and he'd follow you know, you know, smoking a cigar or whatever, you know, with a couple of towels on. He smelt like this horrible stuff they rub all over big athletes and um he'd sign autographs and anyway later in life i i had to he, he left that and he decided he was a cook well he wasn't a very good cook he liked to eat <laughs> so he had this italian restaurant and he he rented a piano from yamaha music our our place and so my guy said uh pat uh, there's a piano in it uh and uh angelo mosca's restaurant you want to go pick it up and i said why he hasn't paid his bills I said, yeah, I've met him before. He's, he's fine. Anyway, I walked in there and I got my friend Ted Cipriani with me. Ted, Ted's a, a big dude. He's a football player, really calm guy, never says a word, right? Like he's just Mr. Mellow. He ended up being a, an HR guy for uh, DeFasco, um, which is Mattel Steel now in Hamilton. And he spent most of his career there. Now he's a, not, uh, he's a real estate agent. And he said, Pat, he said, we walked in. And, you know, we're moving the piano off of the stage and Angelo walks out, Mr. Mosca, right? And like Mosca 
like ruin people's careers. Like you just rip their heads off. He would break things. There's actually video of him, a quarterback attacking him. Um, as the two of them were in kind of retirement mode and they, they just had it out <laughs> that like in their seventies. And, uh, anyway, I, I, you know, he comes out, he says, Hey, what are you doing? I said, Oh, Mr. Mosca, nice to see you, sir. Come to pick up your piano. And, um, you know, I understand, you know, you've been a little bit late on bills and that's fine. That happens to all of us. So what would, we're going to take the piano back to the shop. And it says, you, you know, get your accounts squared away. I'll bring it back. No problem. He says, kid, don't touch the piano. And I'm going, Mr. Mosca, sir, you know, you've had such a great career. And I hear from behind me, uh, time to go. <laughs> so, I, so, so I carry on. I'm going, Mr. Mosca, please, sir. Like, like, Let's just, you and I have a chat. He says, tell you what, kid, we're going to have a chat about me ripping your head off and breaking every freaking bone in your body. How do you feel about that? And then you hear, ah, it's time to go. <laughs> so anyway, I'd forgotten all about it. I'd forgotten all about the story. And then years later, I bump into Ted Cipriani. He goes, you freaking leprechaun, you, you freaking crazy Irishman. Mosque is going to rip your head off. And I'm the last man standing. I got to back you up. What the hell did you get me into? <laughs> no, we got out of there alive. Just wasn't afraid. <laughs> oh, Lord. What's there any guy? Let's see. Pat truly is one of the people I call a friend. Last three years have been crazy with what went on with our daughter. Pat always reached out at the right time. Yeah, you know, Pat is one of the most thoughtful, kind-hearted, loving people I've ever met in my life and just happens to be a sales savant and a negotiation expert. It, you know, that's just a bonus. Um, thanks, Ernie, for saying that. Pat, you want to make a comment? Ernie's... On Ernie's Bernie, Bernie, by the way, is top drawer. Uh, his daughter uh, developed uh, childhood cancer and uh, battled it for almost a quarter century. And she beat it. And now she's a nurse. Wow. Oh, that, she nearly, that warms my heart. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how Ernie did it. He just, he's one of these guys. He, like, you just, you know, no is a word, not a condition, as I say in the book. Well, so we have somebody who Pat is not feeling great. Their door, their, their door is not swinging the way it should. And one of the interesting asides that everybody should know that's watching this is one of Pat's bosses was the president of, of Simmons uh, furniture. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, Pat learned a lot. And sometimes when me and Pat cut it up, you know, we get into some of those discussions and they're just hilarious. But somebody who's not feeling especially positive right now, Pat, what would your advice be to them? I mean, we all know that there's not going to be a magic wand. Uh, no matter who gets elected in the United States, it's going to be tough sledding for the next two years. Um, 
and of course, we're going to go into an election year, so that's going to be all kinds of of craziness. Um, what is the advice to a person who is wanting actually to be hopeful, but they're just having a tough time getting there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I've had a lot of time to think about that notion. And it was my mother uh, who, you know, she fought um, anxiety. She fought all kinds of demons because uh, during the Great Depression, she had to wear uh, Salvation Army clothes to school, which meant she was wearing paper shoes and she was at the most elite high school in Hamilton. Kids are cruel. And um, she had this way of looking at the world. And she would just say, she would say to me, because we were half Scottish, she'd say, on the worst days, on the worst days, uh, she'd say, Pat, you got to get your Scots on. So what does that mean, Ma? She says, that means you remember your heritage. You don't let anything get in the way of, of your success. And, and, and by the way, don't bury yourself in these negative conversations. So... What I, what I taught myself over a period of time was, first of all, under extreme stress, um, live in the now and don't get too far into the future, but spend most of your mental time in the present. Um, because, uh, you know, if you live in the past, you're trying to fix things that can never be fixed. So if you're living too far in the future, you're trying to predict how the stock market is going to work. And of course, that never works. Um, you can only make calculated best. So one of the things I put in the book, I, I, you want to speak to CEOs, and this is really what I'm teaching my participants now, is how do you address the C-suite? I actually put in, and you'll know this from the bonus round, Pete, but you, you saw it in real life, how I do stock trades. And stock trades for me, a full position was 50,000 US on a single security. And I give you two wow. examples where I did it. I did, in one particular case, uh, CyberArk, which was a company that I, that I chose, uh, wasn't yet on the radar screens of RBC Dominion. And I actually got called in by the regional vice president saying, sit down, I want to talk to you. And I said, what is it? He said, how did you come up with the business case to, to, um, to buy this company on the IPO, knowing that you know 80% of IPOs are, are negative? It's only about 20% where the, the stock accelerates out. Alibaba was one of them, then it went bad. But there's very few. And um, he said, why? And I said, well, I said, first of all, it's an Israeli company. Um, I said, these people uh, in, in, the, in the area of cybersecurity are, they've got to be in the top four in the world. And um, the, the leader of the company, you know, was an active service um, military man. And um, I just believe in what they're doing. I just, you know, here's, here's a whole bunch of other reasons. And he sat there and he kind of threw his pen down or something like that. And he goes, What's even on our screen? He says, will you come work for us? He says, all you have to do is pass the exams. And I just looked at him. I said, you know what? Um, Graham, I, I, I really appreciate that because it had happened before. CIBC did the same thing with me, uh, which is our other big Canadian bank. They wanted me to come in and work as an advisor. I said, I was born to do what I'm doing. Um, I, don't, I, I don't mind handling my family's money, but... You know, I've conditioned my mind to build the business cases to buy certain companies at certain times. So 
most recently, I've been short the Canadian dollar for almost two years now, 100% cash. Everybody lost money last year. You couldn't buy the top seven stocks in the stock market last year and do it in isolation. So most people either broke even or lost. And then when you put fees on top of it, last year I made money. And this year I'm making a lot of money because I'm short the Canadian dollar. And it's like a binary short. It's like the big short from the book. So that's the kind of thinking I, you know, when I go in to see CEOs, I don't talk to them about, so I talk to them about their world. So when I did some work with Carson's team um, with the Microsoft platform sellers, I camped out on um, the Microsoft website, but I was specifically, you know, sort of immersing myself in the, in the, in the, the kinds of level up, level down uh, packages that they offer. And what I presented them to them was the uh, 10 ugliest negotiation strategies that a buyer can ever use. Um, I put it into a presentation and each slide had to have a perfect representation of that, um, of, of that buyer strategy with navigation, uh, with buyer risk, seller risk, and time compression. And at the end of it all, so you got these sellers, 25 of the, you know, like the brightest sellers that Silicon Valley can dig out and brilliant guys like Carson, who lives in St. Louis. Um, and I get peppered with questions, just peppered. So here you've got like arguably the top salespeople in the world. But when it comes to negotiation, um, we're all faced with, with challenges. So, so right now to get to your, you know, your, your biggest question, the thing that you've got to do is first of all, bolt down all business that you can bolt down, um, at, at, at what you figure is a reasonable price to live for for the next 18 months to two years. You say, why do I say that? Because when I was with the Toronto Star, when interest rates went to 18%, that's exactly what they did. And the next thing they did was they cut all costs, but they didn't cut one cost. It was crazy. They went out and they bought the best sales training in the world because what they realized was in a volatile market, there's only going to be a few people that win. And their decision was with a 120-person sales team, that the Toronto Star, 13th largest newspaper in North America, was going to be the number one. Nobody could touch this newspaper in Canada. And they went out and they bought big. And you know what? We went into the marketplace and we killed it. We owned it. And um, it was one of the most unusual things I ever saw in my life. I've never seen anybody do it again in, in those conditions. But it was just, it was a, it was a really hard decision. Uh, because if you're going to cut costs, you got to cut all costs, Right. No, they, they said, this is, this is the reverse of a cost cut. This is a cost investment. At the same time, I took a customer out for a piece of chicken, got hauled into a manager's office and had my ass kicked over five bucks. Wow. Wow. That's about, that's the truth. That's about as good as when you set all the sales records at that company. And then the, 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 quote, sales manager uh, ripped you apart for not wasting the company's resources, taking people out to dinner. Uh, Oh, I was working working 80 hours a week. Yeah, you were so busy writing business and setting new records and this this dude had no... And and, and by the way, that's one of the best quotes in the book uh, of no one when to walk away. But I, I... 
sadly, our time is drawing near, but I want to I want to point out a couple of things. Pat says things so fast and glosses over um he doesn't realize what he just said. When he was talking about his mom saying Scott's on, remember your heritage. You know, it makes me think of Lion King. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Don't get dragged into negative conversations. John F. Lawhon wrote a great book about selling furniture years and years ago before he passed. He called it the losers in the lounge. Stay away from the losers in the lounge. They have nothing good to Absolutely. say. Productive to say. Yeah. Do not get sucked into these these uh, conversations, including including family members, including yeah. family members. And, and, and I've had to ditch a couple. And listen, I I don't recommend you ditching unless you have to, but you can become a master at avoiding. But the, you said something that was incredibly life-changing. Spend your time in the present moment. And if you really want to fully develop that thought, we can't do it here. We're just running out of time. You read Vernon Howard's stuff, read Guy Finley stuff. The moment of change in your life is not in the past and it's not in the future. It's right now, right now in the present moment is your opportunity to make a new choice and to change the direction of your life. I yield to my esteemed colleague. Uh, You know what? The best negotiators, and I had a privilege this summer of uh, spending the month of June with um, on podcasts and you know live streams like this um, with people from McGill University, Columbia, Stern School of Business, Kellogg, Northwestern, the Harvard Negotiation Group, the Harvard Project started by Jimmy Carter and a bunch of European um, uh, universities. And the very best negotiators in the world all agree that most people just don't understand anything about strategy. But they also agree that staying in the present, staying in the present and staying curious about the present and not trying to press the present is what gets you the best results. The other thing that's kind of interesting, so, you know, this is taking a long time for this to happen, Pete, but um, I would always go first in negotiations because I was always so absolutely fundamentally a thousand percent sure of what I was doing in, in, you know, $13 million negotiations. My portfolio was 35 million when I was uh, uh, in my thirties annually. And um, I prepared so hard that when I walked into my customer's building, they're building their rules. I would compress all my, uh, my notes into a tiny little deck, all highlighted. And then I would read them, commit all of the cost modeling. Uh, gotta remember, I was representing 125 newspapers simultaneously. So committing 125 different economies in my mind all at once and with all the particulars of it and with all of the competitive sets, every competitive set was different. And, um, so I had to stay in the present, but the other thing I had to do was, calm myself down and slow my mind down so that the room felt slower so that I could concentrate on everybody in the room 
and who was deferring to who so that I knew exactly the right moment to say, I think we have a deal. I think I'd like to go another way. Can I add this tiny little piece? By the way, we appreciate you. Pat, as always, we could go on for two or three hours. We are out of time, my friend. But I have to ask one last question really fast. Was there a question that you wanted me to ask you that I didn't ask you? No, but there's one thing that I didn't answer completely. And you did ask the question. And, and, the, and the answer is about what do you do when things are really, really, really awful? Yeah. So what I want you to do is go for a one-mile one walk. In the first uh, half mile out, I want you to put every ugly problem on the table, raked by disgusting difficulty, and try to figure it out. And as soon as you make the turn on the half hour back, I want you to completely uh, close out everything you thought of And all I want you to do is think about all of the smells, the wind, the nature, and everything around you. Look up at the sun, look up at the sky, and ask yourself with great truth. And I want you to rank the things that you are the most grateful for. Because what happens is if you do this often enough, you will, uh, you will, you will, you will transfer yourself into gratefulness, uh, mode. And I find that these days with all of the troubles that we have around the world, if I get just into a little snippet of a, of, a, of, a, of a negative mood, I stop right away and I say, no, wait a minute. That's not the question. The question is not, not what's wrong. The question is, what am I grateful for? Yeah. Wow. That is so powerful. What a way to finish off the show with gratefulness. It opens up all the doors to your creativity. If you're not grateful, you're not going to be receptive to the ideas that are all around us, always trying to pour into us. Anybody that watches this show and you want one of these books, order it on Amazon right now. Nothing stops me. Pat, you are an absolute joy. You are an inspiration. And you are just an absolute fountain of knowledge. Uh, guys, I could not, guys and gals, I could not recommend a book uh, more to you. Grab this book right now. Nothing stops me. And let me and Patrick know. Pat, anybody that wants to reach out to you, they have to want to uh, uh, talk to you after listening to the show. How do they get a hold of you? What's the best way? Yeah, you know, just drop Patrick Tinney into any search engine and stand back because there's usually a lot of uh, animal noises. Um, and <laughs> they're, they're usually uh, honey for badgers. Sure. Honey badgers, yeah, a lot of wolverines, a few grizzly bears, um, <laughs> and a lot of uh, you know, a lot of people screaming. I was good looking before electricity. Um, and, the, and the last thing is, give me a call and just ask me about my master classes. Honest to goodness, friends. I will change the way that you do business. You're not going to think the way that you used to. I don't teach you how to sell to buyers. I teach you how to sell to change makers and market makers. Wow. Patrick, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, Buy Patrick's book. 
and let us know how you enjoyed the show. Thanks a million and sell a million. Nothing Stops Me by Patrick Tinney. Buy it now or be square. Thank you, Patrick. Peace to you, my brother.